Welcome to Word of Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is January 23rd, 2022, and we're ready to continue our worship service. Uh, we're continuing with the thought of the week in prayer. Okay, stop. It's living righteousness. Since we already touched on doing good work or living righteousness, we must say that only faith people can do good work. Only those who receive the righteousness of God, of Christ, those justified, can do good work. We should also discuss the value of those works we learn to do after we are saved. Good works do matter to God. We must place them in their right perspective. We have been given the indwelling spirit who fills us with God's proper motivation. Let us make sure we do understand. After salvation, God has expectations of us to maintain good work. He expects that we bear fruit, and there are no two ways about it. It is not God's will for us to live a life of unrighteousness and sinfulness once we are saved by grace. He expects that we be transferred by the renewal of our minds. He expects us to maintain fellowship with him by walking in the light as he is in the light. If we said he wants us to confess our sins to him, God wants us to grow in the knowledge and in the grace of our Lord. He expects that we will all grow until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Attaining the whole measure of the performance of Christ, now we must bring the proper perspective to doing good work. Well, we had already discussed work um, prior to this. Uh, we all have the information that we need to sustain this. But I just thought I could give it over to the white folks to give us prayer. Thank you very much, Dave. And before I begin, is there anybody who has um, specific requests, uh, prayer requests? Let us bring those before the Lord. And we'll pray for the Maya family. Absolutely. All right, let's, um, let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Dear Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity that we have to fellowship with each other and uh, also to remind each other how we should approach this, that we are being, we are looking to be in cooperation with the spirit of truth and humble ourselves and become teachable because there's so many details um, that we need to learn and uh, not only um, understand in our mind, but to assimilate into our hearts as well. And I pray that you would give us all um, open eyes in our hearts to hear what the Lord, what, um, what your word has to say to us. And um, that will probably, uh, most undoubtedly, include unlearning what we had previously held to be true. 
and let us learn to rely on you, the Holy Spirit, Spirit of Truth, for an understanding of what God's Word is. I pray for Word of Truth Church and um, not only those on this call, uh, but also those who have been associated with Word of Truth Christian Church in any part of their lives. And so, um, these are all opportunities that we have had and, and hope to have in the future. Um, where we can um, bring your word out to uh, other people, um, but also that we can understand it deeper so that we can readily and gently, with seasoned with salt, uh, answer any question who, uh, answer anybody who has um, a question about scripture or doctrine. I pray for all those who are sick among us and, and um, the ones who are feeling hardship, whether it's health or finance or whatever the circumstances may be, um, Lord, you know, and I pray that that you would help us to um, get, you know, deal with the trials and tribulations of being in this world, even though we are not um, of this world. I pray also for the the church worldwide, the the whole body of Christ around the world that um, each of us would have an opportunity to grow closer to you and uh, closer to understanding all of your truth. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, uh, Dwight. Appreciate that as well. Dave, thank you so much. We are continuing where we left off. Uh, We just came from... John 17, 5, where we took our time, developed uh, that information, and I thought that we had a great opportunity to develop it, Uh, although I can't say that we thoroughly finished it, but but guess what? I'm glad that we're not finished with it because we continue with the context, which will have uh, thoughts around that, so... We don't ever have to feel like, well, we didn't really cover the verse in exactly all the detail we wanted to, but we can continue on to the next verse, which is the same context. So let's get it. Uh, John 17 and 6 says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. In your notes, as Jesus turns his attention to the Father in prayer, he reveals things not commonly spoken of today. We get a chance to see behind the scenes into what was on Jesus' mind in a very personal way. Also, keep in mind, this period was moments before Jesus leaves for the Garden of Gethsemane to meet his betrayer. His focus is on the work he will certainly finish. Imagine that. The eternal purpose of the Father depends on this special work that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That last phrase is in Ephesians 3.11. So we have a continuation of where we left off with John 17.5. Here we are. Let's try to break this down and understand it as best we can. 
So this first phrase, I have revealed you. So the word revealed is phanero'o in the Greek. It means to render apparent, literally or figuratively, appear, manifestly declare, make or manifest, forth or show. Those are some of the ways that word is translated in the scriptures. And I like, if you were to think about what is the best definition, I would say it's to manifest or declare, to make known, to show the Father. I like what Philip said, show us the Father, and then we'll be satisfied. That'll be enough for us if you just show us the Father. And, but Jesus is saying, I have come to manifest the Father. How is it? Man? He, he, he pushed back on Philip's question. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you know I've been doing that? <laughs> That's what, he literally pushed back on him. I think we got that in the context, so we'll get to that later. But that's just, I have revealed you. We just wanted to make sure we understood what the word means. Let's move on. As the Savior of the world, Jesus' Jesus's work revolved around the following. So when we think about <clears throat> the work of Christ on our behalf, two things should come to our thinking. For the world, most of, and this is the Christian world, most of, the thinking around the work of Christ will be in these three categories. But there's much more in the next notes that, <coughs> that we will see. <coughs> so let's get into what are some of the three things that people will realize when they think about the work of Christ or the finished work of Christ? Well, point one is miracles, signs, and wonders to, <coughs> to demonstrate that he is the, the Messiah sent from God. <coughs> Excuse me. He's the Messiah sent from God. A couple scriptures, and we're going to go quickly because we got a lot of scriptures. This is, <coughs> hope you have your Bibles handy. John 3 and 2. And it's one thing to, to use Nicodemus in this scripture <clears throat> but what he said was absolutely true he says he came to jesus one night and said to him rabbi we know we know that god has sent you as a teacher but then he says no one can perform the miracles you perform unless god is with him nicodemus saw those miraculous signs and wonders and he knew that it was something supernatural about Jesus. He couldn't just dismiss it and say, well, anybody can do that. Or those things happen. You know, he had a headache. I was healed. Uh, that's not a big deal. Nicodemus couldn't. By witnessing these signs and miracles, it was undeniable that Jesus was coming from God. It was undeniable. That's our first scripture. And then John 20, 30, and 31, uh, all the way down to, to the last end of the book. It says, Jesus performed many other miracles that his disciples saw. Those miracles are not written in this book. But, you know, I'm reading from a different version here. I just noticed. I'm going back to, that was the God's Word version. Back to the NIV. Let's start again. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing it, you may have life in his name. So John is giving you the purpose for the writing of this letter. He's giving you good understanding of why he wrote it. And he's telling you that these miracle signs and wonders were given to demonstrate who Jesus was. So when Jesus says he revealed, I have revealed you, this is what the Father is the one who sent the Son, obviously, to do this work to, so that he would be the focal point. Whoever believes in him will not, be, uh, will not perish but have eternal life. <clears throat> so then there's Acts 4.12, which I will quote, says, There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved, right? Because no man has ever done the miracle signs and wonders that Christ did. And then Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 on this point. This is part of the work of Christ. And we, we should acknowledge that when we think about the work of Christ, I say it's in two categories. This is one. Uh, these three points are one category. And this what comes after will be the second. So uh, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 is a very important verse if you haven't uh, ever noted that and if you haven't committed it to memory you should because it's a very important verse in helping us understand the purpose of miracle signs and wonders so people look at these things and think well if jesus did miracle signs and wonders i should be able to do them too and uh, i will assume i have some sort of power that i can heal people or when what jesus did is unprecedented nobody has ever done what Jesus did. No one. No other religions have come up and said they did miracles or any of that. There were some legend, legendary things, but we are dealing with a supernatural God, somebody who definitely has more power over um, things than we do. Like, for instance, a good example is when Jesus calmed the sea. There was The disciples were ready to throw in the towel they, that was it. They were giving up. They said, Master, don't you care that we're dying? That we're perishing? And that's when Jesus stood up and rebuked the wind and the waves. He also rebuked the disciples. But he rebuked the wind and the waves, and the wind and the waves calmed down. They obeyed him. Can you imagine the look on the disciples' faces? I mean, it must have been, what? kind of man is this who can do this and the winds and the waves obey him right these miracle signs and wonders were unprecedented and they tell us that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved no other way any way possible that this can't be the messiah uh, so just want to amplify that point. Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 is also speaks of that. Let's read it. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Now get this. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. When it says God also testified, it means he also confirmed 
that this is the way. Signs, wonders, and miracles helps people know God's in it. Now, I'm not saying that God needs to continue to be in it now. We have the record in the sense that God left us his word. He doesn't have to keep on doing signs, wonders, and miracles. He's already done those things. He's already established the way. And all we are required to do is follow it. That's it. So that's a very important verse for us. There's a lot that verse says. More than just what we read on the surface of things. And then point two. To fulfill a right, all righteous requirements for man. So this is also what Christ came to do. Let's read a couple of verses around Christ's work. Matthew 5, 1 says, Now, uh, wait a minute. Is that where? That is not. Uh-oh, we got a bad scripture. Uh, so, I have here Matthew 5, 1. Did I really mean Matthew 5, 1? I don't know. No. We're going to skip that. Uh, we'll figure out later what, what I meant by that. Just what did I mean? And we're going to go to 317. Matthew 317. Stand by. It's always, it's always one in every lesson it looks, it seems, sometimes. Okay, so <clears throat> here, and it's just a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. reason why I brought this verse, because the previous verse talks about, at least the one that you should have gotten, it talks about uh, righteousness, how important righteousness is for us. And then this verse talks about the fact that Christ is the only one who's pleased, who, who's, who pleased the Father. We'll read a couple other ones, Luke 9.35. Luke 9.35 <clears throat> says, A voice came from the cloud, saying, This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So, again, the approval from the Father. Mark 9.7. Let's read it. We're going to go quickly with these verses. 9.7 Then a cloud appeared and covered them. A voice came from the cloud. This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. And then the last one in that is 1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Corinthians 1 and 30 says, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us, notice, wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So notice, we're not righteous in ourselves. We're righteous because of what Christ brought to us. We don't have wisdom of ourselves. We don't have holiness of ourselves. And we don't have redemption of ourselves. All of that comes from Christ and the work that he finished on our behalf. All of it. So imagine, we can't perform anything, uh, any righteous. So, so the scripture says there is none righteous not even one. So the only way we're going to get righteous is <coughs> that Christ brings righteousness to us. <clears throat> and that he does because he pleased the Father. 
And further, we should say uh, that Christ was raised from the dead, which also speaks to the fact that he approves of the work of Christ on our behalf because he raised him from the dead. So that's point number two. Point number three, the Lamb of God. So Christ is the Lamb of God. In other words, the propitiation for the sins of the world. And if, <clears throat> I got a couple verses here. John one twenty nine says, uh, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, that's propitiation, right? This is where Christ was judged for our sins. And then 1 John 2, 2, which you should already have plugged into your memory. Uh, 1 John 2, 2, it says, He is the atoning sacrifice. That's the word propitiation. For our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation means the satisfaction of the justice of God. In other words, when we're said to be justified, that, that's saying God is satisfied with the work of Christ on our behalf, meaning the righteousness that we receive from Christ. That's good enough for the justice of God to say justified to everyone who's in Christ. That's why we're just before God. That's the basis of our standing before God. So when we read about propitiation, 1 John 2, 2, uh, and then there's um, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 6 is our last one there. 1 Timothy 2, and verse 6 says, <clears throat> well, we could go to 5 and 6. It won't hurt us to go 5 and 6. Uh-oh. Thanks, Dwight. We'll go back to that. Look at, Dwight suggested that maybe I meant 5, 17. We'll look at that. <clears throat> So, 1 Timothy 2.6 says, Who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed at the proper time. And, for, and, and when we think about that, a ransom for all people. Ransom is Christ's death pays for something. It frees us from whatever happened uh, with Adam. So, Adam did what he did and brought what he brought. So did Christ. But it left us in a unique position. Because of what happened to Adam, we, yeah, we're, that's the bad news. But because of what happened to Christ, uh, with Christ, that is the good news. We can choose now to believe, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of those things will follow. So uh, Christ came to pay for sins, no doubt about it. Uh, and so those three things are what most people talk about when they talk about the finished work of Christ. That's, and I'm going to look at Matthew 5, 17. Let's see what that says. Ah, <clears throat> is that it? Do not, it says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that is absolutely right. Thank you, Dwight. That is the verse I was thinking of. So, Christ did not come to take away the law and say, well, we're moving that aside. He fulfilled the law, which means he obeyed the law in every respect. For the father to say, I'm pleased with him, which is the next four verses mentioned, 
Uh, I'm pleased. This is my son. A voice from heaven means Christ did fulfill the law. He did fulfill all righteousness. Thanks, Dwight. Appreciate that. Keeping keeping our context here and in our notes, point number C. Now, so as I said, there's a distinction. A lot of people think that is it when it comes to the work of Christ. There's not that. There's more, and we're getting to that right here. So point C, Jesus came to reveal the Father. There are two verses that immediately speak to this in my mind. So two, these two verses are John 1.18 is the first one. <clears throat> he came to reveal the Father. Now, there's other verses that pop in my mind. I'm just giving you the, the two that as I was writing this that pop in my mind. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. Now here he's talking about God the Father. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father. So there, my interpretation of, of God being the Father is also seen by later, he says, it's the Father. And then it says, has made him known. In other words, I have revealed you. So this verse it's pretty interesting where it says no one has ever seen God. And this is previous to this until Christ having made him known. And who is himself, God, is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. This also lends more information when we talk about John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. God, what do you mean God? God the Father. That's who we mean. And the word was God. Now, is the word God the Father? No. The word was with, and it has a definite article, the God, meaning a specific one. But then when it says the word was God, it doesn't say the word was the God. And if it did say the word was the God, then we would have to say that the word and the Father are the same person. But it does not say that. It says the word was, no definite article, Theos, God, meaning the, the absence of the definite article emphasizes the quality of the noun. And the noun here is Theos, God. So in essence, the word was in essence God. He is not God the Father, but he is in essence God. So it's, it's good. It's interesting as we see John 1.18. There's a lot that is said there that can be brought out. Jesus came to reveal the Father. And then uh, 14, we couldn't leave this thought without going to this verse. John 14, 7 through 11. So let's look at it. <clears throat> Jesus says, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father. And that will be enough for us. So this is, this is a great question because Jesus says, I have revealed you uh, uh, to those whom you have given me out of the world. He's talking to the Father and he says, I have revealed him. But now Philip is saying, who is this Father? Show us the Father. I heard a lot of talk about the Father. Please show us this Father you've been talking about. And Jesus is basically saying, I've been showing him to you. And let's look at Jesus' response to Philip in verse 9 and following. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Look at him pleading with Philip and the other disciples that they will see this point. This is a very serious point because Jesus is saying, I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. Check. No, that's what I needed to do. That was on my list of things to do. And I did it, Father. He's praying to the Father. At this point, the disciples needed some further instruction. And I believe from Jesus' record at the end of the discourse, where we are in John 17, that they got it. And sure, he had been talking to them about the Father way before John 14. It just sounds like they needed to put some things together. And Jesus did that for them, along with the Holy Spirit, who was also attending them as well. So uh, this part uh, is critical. This is part of the work Jesus came to do. Right? So point, point D, I think, is where we are. Jesus reveals the Father in his role as the image of the Father. And there's two verses I use for this, two passages. One is Colossians, to say this, because none of this has to do with what we, those three things that we just already mentioned. Right? This is more than that. And Jesus came to do this as well. So let this, Colossians 1.15, let's look at a couple of verses that uh, illustrate that. It just says, <clears throat> The Son, and that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's the image of the invisible God. It's interesting. The sun is the image. So the image is to say he's not God, but he, he, literally he reflects everything God is. And when we think about us, we are said to be in the image and likeness of God. Man was created. That's Genesis 1.27. Man was created in the image and likeness of God. And notice it's the invisible God. So whatever part that we are and Christ is of God, it is about an invisible quality of God. And the Son is in, it, he is the exact image of something that is invisible. He is the visible of the invisible. And when it says he's the visible of the invisible, that's interesting because we were just talking about in John 1, 1, where it says in the beginning was the word and word was with God and word was God. And then it talks about things they did together. They were together in the beginning, verse 2. And this helps us understand that even though all that was going on, you couldn't see that. If we were there, which we were not, we would not be able to see what was going on in John 1.1, 1, 1, because they're invisible. The Word was invisible. The Father was invisible. You couldn't see, couldn't understand who they were or what they were doing. 
But the Son now is the visible. He's, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we saw, we beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten from the Father, and so forth, full of grace and truth. That's John 1.14. The Son is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. So the Son is the visible of the invisible. So we are able to look at the Son, even though He's visible, man, and perfectly reflect the invisible. So whatever we are in the inside of us is the exact thing that the invisible God has, and that is our persons. The Son came into the human race, and he was a human being, just like we are. So that's what that says. And so I use that to help us understand what does it mean, because Christ had a role to play. Now, uh, when God created Adam and the woman, he did create them in his image. However, Adam fell. So when you look at Adam, you don't see the image of God. You see the fallen nature that is passed down to us. We are separated from God at birth. And God responds with condemnation. He says, well, how do I feel about it? Condemned. That's what God responds with. So the first Adam may have been created that way, but he fell so that he wasn't uh, reflecting the image of God. But the last Adam, well, that's the word who was with God in the beginning. He became man and he perfectly reflects the image of God. Christ was made in the image of God too. Shouldn't we say that? Right? We say, oh man was created in the image of God. But guess who else was created in the image of God? Christ, the man, Christ Jesus. He was created in the very image of God. We don't reflect the image of God in our fallen nature, but Christ does. We were made to reflect the image of God. Christ reveals that truth in us. Because who we are in Christ is we are now part of carrying the role of the image of the Father. We'll talk more about it as we go. Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. says, uh, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now, think about it. When we talk about God, who is invisible, and he spoke to our ancestors, notice, he's, he wants to communicate to us. God is not somewhere up in heaven with his own agenda, and we have our agenda down here, and he doesn't have anything to tell us. He says, you just go ahead and do what you're doing, I'm doing what I'm doing, and everything's fine. No, God wants to reveal who he is. He wants to tell us things. That's why he spoke. He didn't just say, I'm in heaven, you're on earth. I don't have anything to tell you. Yes, he does. He created us. He has a lot to tell us. But then it says, and that's how he spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and in many times and in different ways. But in two, but in these last days, and that last days are a reflective of the, the thought 
that Christ is here, the Son. Right? When, he, when Christ came on, on board, the Bible considers that the last days. Now, think about that. Is it really? Yeah, it is. Because if you extract this dispensation that Paul said was hidden, it was a mystery, it was not revealed. So if you look at what was given to Israel, by the time Christ showed up on the scene, one long after that, before the tribulation happens, before the end of the world, and all of that. So when Christ shows up on the scene, it's considered the last days. If you, if you subtract out all the years from the mystery, that's Pentecost, to the rapture of the church, then, and then you just close it all up, then you see why. When Christ shows up on the scene, it is the last days. The tribulation is only seven years. It's a very short time. And then you got coming up, the second coming of Christ and him setting up his kingdom in the millennium. It's a different phase altogether. <clears throat> so it's the last days. So he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Christ is the one who is the heir of all things. And through whom he also made the universe. Now look at that. Through whom he made the universe. So the Father made the universe through the Son. Christ is the one who was the heir of all things. Wow, this, is very, this type of language is very descriptive of things that uh, are Christ's accomplishments, but also things that we share. Right? Some of the prerogatives that we have as uh, those who are in Christ. The appointed heir of all things, we're heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Right? We feel every, we feel, we are the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The sun is, verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, <clears throat> the exact, and this is what we were talking about, the exact representation of his being. And when we say the exact representation of his being, that's the very seat of the person, of God. Now, if we think about that, I mean, Christ, when it says that, it literally is talking about an invisible person. How can we talk about the exact representation of his being, of the being of an invisible person? God does not have physicality. He is a spirit. So that's why Christ is the visible of the invisible. But yet, when we look at the person of Christ, he is the exact representation of his being exact sustaining all things by his powerful word after he had provided purification for sins notice there are two purposes here mentioned he's talking about him at his role and revealing the father in this special way that no one else ever did before him adam didn't and then he, he's he's saying after he had provided purification of, for sins. Notice that is mentioned as an aside. Like, yeah, he did that too. Yes. Oh, by the way, he did pay for the sins of the world. He sat down at the right hand of his majesty in heaven. So it goes on to talk about his superiority over angels and such. But, wow, that verse says a lot about what Jesus is and who he is. Uh we could talk more about that, obviously. We should. 
So, so, but we're moving on. The revelation of the Father speaks of the Father's eternal plan. I'm just turning the corner here, helping, helping to understand what it means by talks when Jesus says, I have revealed you. He's saying that to the Father. Obviously, we know that. He's talking about the Father. I have revealed you. And he's talking about the fact that he came to talk about the Father's plan. And that's what's important. Revelation of the Father speaks of the Father's eternal plan, which fulfills his eternal purpose. I just want to read it. Ephesians 3, 10 and 11. And, you know, <clears throat> these verses are key. Ephesians 3, 10, 11. His intent. Wow. To start out with his intent there is really not the place to start, but we're going to. Right? You could read the previous verses because the context is so very important because it deals with the administration of this mystery, this dispensation, right? Which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Why did he have why did he do that? What for? His intent. Well, wow, we got a good explanation of why he did it here. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And this is, verse 11, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, when we think about this, <clears throat> when Jesus says, I have revealed you, this is the important thing here. This is huge. This, is, this deals with something that God hid, but now he's revealing and then he says, it is the very pinnacle. Why I hid it in the beginning? Here, let me tell you what I was thinking when I did it. And we get to know that through just simply revelation. We would never know these things were it not for the Holy Spirit revealing these things to us. So when, when Jesus says, I have revealed you to, to those whom you gave me out of the world, he's saying, what does he mean? He's not saying I've pay for the sins, I provide a purification of sins, or, or I uh, am, you know, I demonstrated righteousness in the world, or I did the miracles and signs and wonders. He's saying, I have revealed you. In other words, there is information that needed to be communicated through me. Just like we read the Hebrews 1-3 passage. Yeah, in the last, the previous, he spoke through prophets in various ways, but now He's speaking through his son, and he's speaking loudly through his son. This is it right here. This is the greatest revelation we could possibly have. So Christ came, and like I said, it was more than just he paid for our sins. I'm not belittling that in any way. Please, let me stop right here and say that. Because somebody might say, well, what are you trying to say? Are you trying to say that him paying for our sins was not a big deal? I'm not saying that at all. What I'm equally saying is that Christ had a different purpose in coming, not just uh, to pay for sins, but this purpose was hidden and now it's revealed and now this is God is saying it's according to his eternal purpose. <laughs> if he says that, well, then I got to I gotta put it where it belongs, <clears throat> at the pinnacle of the Father's thinking. The very pinnacle. If it is according to his eternal purpose, <clears throat> excuse me, 
That's where it belongs, at the very height of God's thinking. Even though he couldn't reveal it until now, <clears throat> he's telling us it was the very height of his thinking. Uh, we could say a lot about Ephesians 3, 10 and 11. Point F, the disciples know, uh, they now know about the Father. <clears throat> but that is not the only point. The point they have been introduced to the Father's plan. This is the point. That they have been in introduced to the Father's plan. Especially in this discourse. John 14 through 17. Yeah. <clears throat> this is the... So, it's interesting. Now you, you probably wonder. Why did we pick to go through John 14 through 17, chapters 14 through 17. Why did we pick that, those four chapters? Because of the implications and all of this. Here, <clears throat> here's where we're coming full circle. I think you've kind of already figured that out. This discourse is very important to the Word of God. It's... <clears throat> He's saying he revealed the Father. That could have never happened. And, and not only did, like Christ said, no man has ever seen God. And he's talking about God the Father. And what he means is they don't know him. They don't know about the plan. No one has ever heard about this plan. It, been, it was hidden in God. That's why. Nobody in the Old Testament understood this. Now, in the Old Testament, guess what they did understand about salvation? They understood that there was going to be a Messiah to come. Wow, if you read Isaiah 53, it's almost like it's written after the fact. Not 700 years earlier than Christ's coming. You could read that. It reads like, yeah, that's exactly what he did. That's exactly what happened. And sure enough, all of that was right there. God didn't hide that from Israel. He didn't hide the fact that people could be saved. Even before Israel came on the scene, people were saved. God was saving people. That's not the point. Right? But this is the point. That in these four chapters, <clears throat> Matthew doesn't do it, Mark doesn't do it, Luke doesn't do it, but John gives us the fullness of this discourse. Yeah, they, they got other pieces of it. Yeah, they do but not the fullness of what we have here in John. And so why not focus on this point where Christ, has, the Father, is his plan is being introduced. By him saying, I'm revealing the Father. Yes, I'm revealing the Father. He's saying, I'm revealing the Father's plan. In those four chapters, and really it's more than those four chapters, he started out in 13, which we didn't go back to, but we started in 14. Those four chapters dealt with the revelation of the Father. So that in chapter 17, <clears throat> as Christ is getting ready to conclude, he says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. And that is key for us to understand who it pertains to as well. Because it was hidden from everybody else. But now he's saying, I revealed you. Before, nobody could have known. But now people do know. And here's the people who know the ones you gave me out of the world. 
And that leads us right to point number two. So I've revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. So the first thought, <clears throat> this is specifically a reference to the disciples. I mean, how would we know? Now, you'd say, why do, why do you have to make that point, Doug? I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's obvious to us. <clears throat> but there's a lot of people who it is not obvious to. And they have made doctrines out of how God has chosen certain ones, and they forget that, wait a minute, he's talking about the disciples. That's a very simple point that, yeah, he's talking to the disciples. Put a lot of theologies out there. We'll use verses that are in here to talk about how God specifically chose some to salvation. If you don't believe it, just go listen to them. I'm not recommending you go listen to them. I'm telling you straight. I've listened to them, and I'm telling you that this is a ref. This reference is specifically to the disciples. Now let's look at it. And why do I say that? I, all you gotta do is look at. I'm going to John. It's very easy to prove from the scripture that he's talking about that. I don't know why people would even say otherwise. I would look at 12. First of all, he's been, the only people who are here right now are the disciples. That's the context. Everybody left. They're in, they were in the upper room. Not everybody left, but Judas left. He was the betrayer. That happened in 13, chapter 13. So, so John seventeen twelve. while I was with them, he's not really even focused on all the th things that he did when he was there on earth. He's talking about while I was with them. Who's them? The disciples. That's what he's talking about. He didn't say about Mary or Lazarus or any of the, uh, the women or any, his focus is on the disciples. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me, by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture will be fulfilled. That's important. Right? So he's specifically talking about the disciples. And it's pretty clear he's following the context of the discourse. It makes perfect sense. In chapter 13, Judas left. He's like, look, this, now I got these people here, this group, the disciples. And I'm giving them the final discourse before I go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want to make it plain to them. And he does. <clears throat> I hope it has been plain to us as well. And we don't just read over these passages like many have done and apply them to the world or to salvation because it's not talking about salvation these people are already saved but yet that is what people assume so it's important for me to state that but then if you look at the context he keeps going i am coming to you now i say these things while i am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them i have given them your word and the world has hated them and it's back in 15, where he says, if the world hates you, it's because not because of you, it's because of me. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not for, that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. 
Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Very special words for us, right? Your word is truth. We already identified what truth was in this discourse in, in, in 16, 8 through 11. And no, well, it's 11 through 15. <clears throat> he talks about the spirit of truth. So, again, he is talking directly about the disciples. And, but then he pivots. He pivots in verse 20. My prayer is not for them. Who's them? And I hear you all saying, the disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And right now you're saying, me. <laughs> yeah, you, us. We believe in the Lord through their message. What's their message? Well, he really I introduced the whole thing in this discourse. Let me tell you, the spirit of truth is coming. On that day, you will realize this, you will realize that. Right? He will teach you this on and on. Spirit of truth. He will take from what is mine. He will make it known to you. It's a new dispensation dawning. And the spirit of truth will be leading the way. Not the spirit of emotion, spirit of truth. And the truth that Jesus is laying down is the revelation of the Father. I'm hoping this is plain and understandable. It is important that it is, and you just don't generalize here. Verse 20 is where we're in the picture. But are we in the picture just like what? We're, what are we supposed to be learning? All the stuff that he talked about with Israel and all that? No. Verse 21, that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Well, the same experience that he told the disciples they are going to have when Pentecost comes, the same experience is for us as well. Not talking about, well, then we will all have the law and we will all... No, that's not what he's saying. Believing, like it says in 20, believing in me through their message. What's their message? The same thing Jesus taught. All of them may be one Father. You are in me, like you are in me and I am in you. They, they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And it continues on. It talks more about qualities that belong only to this age. So it's important that we understand that. So to those whom you gave me out of the world, who are those? Those are the disciples. Really? By extension, it is us too. Because what's true of the disciples in the foundation of the church is true of us in the building of the church. Those key things that Christ talked about. We're going to have to hit point B and then we'll close. <clears throat> point B, for the record, here is the list of the disciples or apostles chosen. And, and this is, um, we covered this some time ago when we were in uh, 15, I believe. And we just need to cover it now as well. So John, uh, actually it's in Luke 6, 12 through 16. Luke 6, 12 through 16 <clears throat> says, One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. It's interesting. And I made this point before. I think we'll make it again. It's important. 
Why do you think Jesus spent all night praying? <clears throat> I mean, he just had some heavy things that he wanted to unload to the Father. Or what? He was in distress. He, he really, I mean, he spent all night in praying to God. But the next verses tell us why. Verse 13, when the morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. Get that. He chose 12 of them. Imagine if you were in that group of disciples, but he didn't choose you. It's very specific here. This is not, oh yeah, well, a lot of people came to Christ. This is how most people think about it. That a lot of people came to Christ and they were disciples. They were learning. But Christ, he had to think about this, but because there was a separation of those people. That's what this says. He spent all night praying, and when he got up in the morning, he called his disciples to him. And that means there was more than just the twelve there. There were others. And he, he chose them. Now remember when it says whom he also designated apostles. Because this is written after the fact. That they are apostles. Right? So just a note. He calls 12 of them. And these are the people who he called. Verse 14 through 16. Simon who is named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is also called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So you see there was definitely some who had uh, same names here, like Simon, it's also the one we have for Peter. And then Simon, who is also called the Zealot, or Ju Judas, right? who is the son of James. He's not Judas Iscariot. Ju Judas Iscariot is the one who became a traitor. There's just some clarification there as well. So you need to see, when he says, those you gave me out of the world, that they are very specific here. When Jesus says, I chose them, he had to make a choice between other disciples that were there. I hope you see that. So that we're left with Ephesians 2 and 20. Um, that's what it results in. <clears throat> Ephesians 2.20 says, we could read verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So there are three things in the foundation, three peoples in the foundation. There's apostles, there's prophets. All of this lent, lent or, or contributed to us receiving the revelation of the Father's plan. Apostles, prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. That's the foundation of the church. Don't even talk about Old Testament prophets. We're only talking about New Testament prophets. That's what we're talking about. With Christ Jesus himself as chief cornerstone. That's the foundation of the church. 
his body. So it's important that we understand these things and see the direction and the distinctions that are made here. So we're going to have to end at this point. We'll cover the rest of this next week. Stay tuned because there's still a lot more for us to see uh, in these verses. So hopefully you got, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world. The distinctions of what we covered in those verses, hopefully, um, are seen, are clear. Let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father, for this time you've given us this week. We so appreciate the fact that we have this place where we can come and, and we can hear your word and we can ask questions. We can question ourselves. We, we can have humility without judgment here. It's not about, as we say, who's right or wrong or any of those things. It's about us being receptive and humble to your word. Father, we thank you for each person that is here. Obviously, the humility shows by the fact that people are coming, shows that we, they want to hear from you, Father. So we thank you for Jesus, who is our Lord, and has blazed the trail for us, who has introduced us to your plan, to your eternal purpose. Thank you for these chapters that are written uh, specifically dealing with this discourse that pertains to us in this age. We thank you that you revealed more of the finished work of Christ, what it all means, not only his miracle signs and wonders, his righteousness, his propitiation, but also the revelation of the Father's plan. Thank you that you chose us in him before the creation of the world, that we could be holy and blameless in your sight. All this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Amen.